Welcome to this episode of the Raising Killen podcast. My name is Marsh Naidu and I blog at RaisingKillen.org where we curate resources for parents raising children with developmental delay and disabilities. As always, remember the content provided on this podcast is purely informational. And if you seek advice for your specific situation, to always contact a trained professional. This episode is brought to you by Rebecca Renfro of Move Up Physical Therapy in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. Rebecca, thank you for your sponsorship. If you would like to support the work that we do with the podcast, please contact us at raisingkillen at gmail.com. In today's episode of the Raising Killen podcast, episode number 87, I chat with Colleen Starkloff. Since I've spoken to her the last time on episode 66, Colleen has indeed retired from the Starcloth Disability Institute. So grab that cup of coffee, put your feet up and get ready for some awesome conversation. Colleen, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, the last time we spoke on episode 66, and that might have been about a year ago when we yeah. uh, talked about the work that's been done at the Starcloth Disability Institute. Yes. Um, that was a really um, impactful talk to me, just learning about your and Max's experience within the context of the disability movement and looking and how things had changed. Thank you, Marsh. I really do appreciate this opportunity. Um, I started doing a podcast, but I'm retired now and I can't do it without an engineer. Uh, so it's a real opportunity and an honor to be able to talk to people who care about the issues that face people with disabilities and the rights of people with disabilities so that we get to exchange information about it and get it circulated. So I, yes. I appreciate this very much. Thank you. Colleen, I, I want you to touch back specifically at, um, with regards to universal design. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean to you, Colleen, uh, the term universal design? Well, it, there's a definition for it, but basically what it means is that you design spaces and places and transit systems, um, public rights of way. You, you, when you create something new in the world, you think about all of the people who can use it, not just um, people who are walking, people who can hear, people who can see. Um, you, you, you really need to um, be more thoughtful so that the design, first of all, is functional, and then, of course, it's very attractive and beautiful. So universal design is the design of spaces with the, uh, so that everybody can use them, but they're adaptable without the uh, least amount of effort. And that's not, the, that's not the dictionary definition of it. But, um, for example, <clears throat> I just did a kitchen. Okay. Um, 
and I made it universal. But if you walked into my kitchen, you would not know that somebody in a wheelchair or somebody who has low vision um, could use my kitchen. But it's all done with different colors. It's all done. Um, <clears throat> I have a an oven that's mounted at a height so you can pull underneath it in a wheelchair and the door, the oven door drops down over your your uh, armrests on your wheelchair. And the bottom rack is on rollers, so it comes out easily as opposed to even 10 years ago when we didn't really have roller racks. And uh, so it would be harder to pull hot food out towards you. Um, I have a microwave that's mounted below one of the ovens. I have two ovens. One is it underneath the counter and one is raised up so you could pull underneath it in a wheelchair. Matter of fact, I just put some cookies in that one that's raised up for my neighbor who's been really nice and I want to give them some cookies. And um, so it's convenient for people who are standing or seated. Um, my colors are black and white, but the countertop is um, kind of a, a marbled gray and white. Uh, the count, the cabinets are black. Uh, the floor is a light brown wood. So when you use different colors, it's very helpful for people with low vision. It just kind of guides people to where things are. I have a raised dishwasher right next to one of my sinks so that a standing person doesn't have to lean over all the time to load a dishwasher. Somebody sitting in a wheelchair can easily... Um, load a dishwasher if it's right next to their sink, rinse the dishes, put them in a, a dishwasher that's under the counter. But for people like me, who uh, I have a broken back uh, from when my horse threw me some years ago, um, bending over is something that I should try to avoid to not aggravate that. The fractures heal. It has happened many years ago, but I can get with a lot of bending, I get a lot of fatigue in my back. So levered handles. Um, I have pop-up electric electric outlets in the countertop. There's also a video that the builder, the builder, my builder is a man who uh, designs homes for disabled veterans. Uh, for the, he does it for the Gary Sinise Foundation, which is focused on veterans with disabilities. But his wife is an interior designer. And so uh, even though I had an architect design it, and the architect did a fabulous job, there were a few little tweaks that the designer was able to help me make uh, that I think made it even more universal. So um, I can send some pictures that he people could that. Uh, reference. There's an hour-long video that, that I did with the builder and his wife, and that may be too long to post, but I can post a link to it in case anybody... It's Just interesting. wants to hear us talking about what we did and why we did it. I tell you, Colleen, that this is the overwhelming part when you start to think about universal design in a home that's already built. That's why I always think it's such an it's so much easier doing this from the ground up as versus retrofitting a home because the issue we are now having is that. We are actually on a crawl space. However, we do have cement steps that lead from a foundation slab garage into the home. And yes, 
the access of those stairs is actually what is limiting Kellen entering and exiting the home by himself, which I don't want. I want him to be able to be able to navigate that independently, but there is so much to it. And there is a bit of overwhelm, if I might add, to the concept of how retrofitting a home does become complicated, especially for parents at the beginning that may not necessarily know the, the trajectory of their child's disability or what levels of support might be needed um, as they near their teenage years or beyond. So I just, I would love, in other words, I would love watching that video because that would kind of be helpful to me. And and I think the, the element of having something look beautiful yeah. that might be medical, but still look beautiful is also very, very appealing. Yeah. So a couple of responses to that, Marsh. One is that I had lunch uh, just the other day with um, a colleague of mine who used to serve on our board, and he and his wife are going to build a very high-end home. They've got the lot. They're going to take down the house that's there, and they're going to build a new home. And I said, oh, this is a great chance for you to make it universally designed. He said, you know, my wife doesn't want that. And I said, what? And I know right away what people think when you talk about universal design, and if you even mention that it's beneficial to people with disabilities, they go, oh, no, 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 I, I don't want that. Because it smacks of grab bars in every room, spaces in your kitchen where you can't pull underneath a countertop at all. Um, and it, it doesn't look normal, a word that we don't like to apply to disability or any aspect of disability. Yes. But in fact, when you think about it, all of us as we age, what, what used to be normal when we were children and then in our 20s, 30s, and 40s, and 50s changes when we enter our 60s, 70s, and 80s. And we have a better chance of living longer right now. And, but people don't embrace the idea that a disability could occur to them, and they don't want to think about going to a nursing home, but they don't have a proactive plan so they can remain in their own home. So... Uh, to your comment, I think most families will be faced with the idea of retrofitting an existing home. Uh, you, you appeal a lot to families with children with disabilities. And a lot of times you'll have one or two kids, but it's not until that third kid has a disability that you go, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? And it depends on what the disability is. But that's when people start to worry. And like you're saying, what happens when they're teenagers? What happens how long does our child stay at home? I can tell you that most of the housing, and I can't remember the statistics right now, but most of the housing in the United States would not accommodate somebody like Kellen. It, it wouldn't. So you're going to have to do something different. Or if a child is born blind, you're going to have to do something different. And um, not, as, not as much for a blind child, as say a child with low vision, uh, more for a child with some type of a mobility disability. Mm -hmm. But it's not gonna be easy to go out into the marketplace and say, well, we'll sell this house and we'll buy another one that's more accessible to the needs of our child. No, you won't, because it may not. it's more likely not to exist in the neighborhood that you like. 
um, it's more likely not to exist within the vicinity of where you are. And so there are, the, the realtors are beginning to add accessibility features into the multi-list. So when they list a house, if it has a ramp or it has an elevator or it has wider bathrooms or it has a kitchen that's been modified, they'll start to put that stuff in. That's happening right now. That's very helpful information, but you're not going to find it on Moss. So most of the parents need to really, well, I think I, I personally pro promote universal design because it's design that, that adapts. So like I said, uh, I'll give you another example. In my kitchen, right. I have a cooktop that's induction. I have a sink in my kitchen and then around, right around the corner, I have an island space with a buffet. And underneath the two sinks and the cooktop, you wouldn't know it by just coming into my kitchen, but the doors will come off the cabinets very easily. They snap off. Strong, sturdy hardware, but they snap off and you can pull out the bottom of the cabinet and lift off the kick, the toe kick and pull right underneath there. And what you do, people say, well, what are you going to do with the pots and pans? You create a pantry and you put them there. And then you get the pots and pans that you need. Or you design your kitchen in the first place to have additional storage adjacent to your cooktop um, or your sink for the things that you want to have close by there. So, but, I, you know, if you if you look at the video, and I'll send you a link, Yes. If you, if you click on the link, you'll see photographs of my kitchen and you'll see a robust conversation between the builder, designer, and myself about why we did things and what features we put in to the kitchen. And then the video goes back and forth referencing those, those features. But I have a friend who, uh, well, my husband, I wish my husband was still alive when when we had the money to for me to modify this kitchen, but unfortunately um, he didn't live that long. But our house was very accessible to him. We have an elevator that goes from the basement to the third floor, and um, Max could pull underneath a space. He didn't cook. I was the cook. Uh, <laughs> we have a stepless entrance in, in from the backyard and a pathway from the front of the house to the back so that he could wheel back to the backyard and come up through the through the back door into our family room, which is adjacent to our kitchen, which is a which is where we spend most of our time in this house. Uh, but he could also get in the kitchen, I mean in the living room and the dining room. So those spaces are already accessible with the floor plan, the existing floor plan of the house. But it's really important, I think, for people to think of modifications that they're going to make. Like if if you're worried about your garage, is there space to expand your garage? A good architect or a, or a, a builder who can think outside the box can help you and your husband uh, and Kellen too. Let Kellen get in on thinking about how to, how yes. to do this. And can you add on an addition in the back of your house? Can you add on another floor? I don't know if you have a two-story house or a one-story house, but there are ways to do this and there are ways to make it very attractive. And I'll tell you what some parents do. Okay. Some parents 
will add on a sort of an uh, an ensuite or a you know like a mother-in-law's suite or whatever for their child, and that becomes a master bedroom on the first floor for their child, and the parents go upstairs if they don't have a disability. But a lot of them think about leaving their house to their child. There are pros and cons to that. One is, does your child really want to stay there and live there for the rest of his life and you guys move out or, God forbid, die, but we all do? Um, Or if you do it very nicely and beautifully, if you do it universally, then whatever accessible features are there can be disguised or you know adapted back to so it doesn't look like it's modified for somebody with a disability and the house is very saleable to somebody who doesn't have a disability but then we have one more house on the market that's a that goes into yes. the multi-list and it becomes listed as something that was accessible to somebody who has a, a mobility disability so you know there are ways to do this but you don't I've said this to parents. I know you want to leave your house to your child, but what if your child goes to college, gets married, and moves to another town or moves to another neighborhood or gets a job at a company and finds housing nearby and creates their own house because they learned how to do it with you. So there are different ways to think about it, but you don't want to tie your child or guilt your child into living in the house because it's your idea. However, your child might really appreciate it and say, this is great. So there's just, when, when parents look at their kids, I hope they look at their kids as growing up and being independent and having a full and rich life for themselves, defining what independence looks like for them. And so parents are the best progenitors of the idea that you will be independent of us someday. Another thing to think about with a house is if you have a live-in attendant for a son or daughter, um, you know, where are you going to put that person? And that does happen. It does happen. Now, a lot of times um, parents assist their children until they're you know, they go away to college. And colleges, that's another point. Colleges are becoming very much more sort of the independence playground for kids who go away from school and they don't have mom or dad right there to assist them. And they have to they have to use their good brains to figure out how are they going to manage. And they get vocational rehabilitation, which will pay for attendance in most states. And they can hire students to be their attendants. It gets them going to a full productive life. So all of these things, I mean, I'm kind of wandering here, but it's because. No, but it's it's perfect. You're kind of going through the continuum of care, so to speak. I love that. Yeah. You, you, when, when parents have a new baby and that baby has a disability, you don't think, oh, the poor thing. Parents have got to think, okay, what? What are the challenges my son or daughter is going to um, experience? Attitudes is one of them. But but we, those of us in the disability rights movement, have begun to pick away at some of those attitudes by creating the 
necessary tools and equipment and environment so that a person with a disability can really grow. Um, couple, there's a few things that we haven't gotten done yet. And that's for another conversation with you. <laughs> Colleen, there was um, a gentleman I spoke to uh, about a week ago, and his name is Pete Hickson. Uh, they live in um, uh, Woodstock, Georgia. And him and his wife, um, they have a young daughter, Addie, that has a who has a disability. And she's currently going to Shepherd's College, which is a three-year program in Wisconsin, where you can pathway your, um, uh, your, your pathways can take you down a uh, horticultural course, a culinary uh, certification, or a computer science certification. But what they've come up with is this concept um, or model rather called Beyond Communities, which are, um, uh, which are co um, condo style apartments for young adults uh, with disabilities. And he calls them um, a mixed residential unit within a close vicinity to an urban area so that these young adults are able to um, uh, source work nearby, uh, live independently, as well as interact within the community, whether it's, you know, walking or driving to a movie, going out to a restaurant, having connections within the community. So that was um, a really uh, interesting concept. I. Uh, um, I knew of the work that the Starcraft Disability Institute was doing in finding or rather facilitating the connection between school and the workplace. Um, but the uh, I think the work that Pete is doing is more or less around making sure that there is that accommodation or those living facilities close by your workplace. So um, is this a congregate living community for children or young adults with intellectual disabilities? The way he explained it, it is for young adults that have completed college that want to live by themselves. Um, and um, it kind of fills the gap between perhaps 25 and 50. I mean, it was just exciting. It's exciting knowing that, I mean, we have parents, we have thought leaders that are, are thinking and problem solving around, um, you know, around the, the workplace employment, around issues uh, surrounding uh, medical healthcare provision, transportation and accommodation. Um, yeah. So that has been going on for 60 or 70 years in this country, and it's often led by parents who are concerned about where their children are going to live. One of the things that uh, independent living centers are doing is trying to solve the issue of housing that is really adaptable to people with disabilities, which is why I got involved in universal design. The creator of Universal Design is an architect by the name of Ron Mace, uh, who lived in North Carolina. 
He grew up as a person with a disability, as a little kid with a disability who had polio. And so he saw that the built environment was um, pretty hostile. I mean, he walked with, you know, uh, braces and crutches as a little kid, but uh, he grew up to be an architect and he used a wheelchair, used a power chair. When Max and I met him um, in Washington, we were having dinner with him one night and um, I said, so Ron, you know, what, what, what are you, what are you working on? Because he created the accessibility code for the state of North Carolina. This is years ago. And it, it was so accessible that states all over the country began to adopt it because it was so good. It was also created by an architect who basically gets it because he grew up thinking that the world was pretty hostile to him. And it was um, back in the, well, I'm talking the 70s, 60s and 70s. Um, and so Ron began to, as an architect, apply his talent to eliminating barriers. So he said, his answer to me was, well, I'm working on a concept called universal design. And he started talking to me about universal design and spaces that are adaptable and very easy for everybody from birth to old age. And he was talking on and on. And I stopped him. I said, wait a minute, Ron, what are you talking about? We've been working so hard just to pass accessibility codes. Now, this was in the early 80s by this time. He'd done a lot of work. And Max and I met him in the early 80s when we were starting the independent living movement. So we're having dinner with him. And um, I said, why are, you, why are you walking away from accessibility? And he said, think about it, Colleen. What's accessible for one isn't necessarily accessible for all, for one thing. For another is, he says, we paint ourselves into the corner if we create housing and all spaces that are just wheelchair accessible, for example. He said, we need to think of people with vision loss and hearing loss. Um, and, you know, we need to think more broadly about who are disabled people and what are their changes. What about people who age? and they age into disability, and they don't realize that their home will not work for them anymore because they won't be able to get up the front steps after they had that stroke and they went to the hospital. They end up stuck in nursing homes, and that's not where they want to be. So he said, we shoot ourselves in the foot if we don't think about everybody and how people's needs change across the lifespan. And I said, whoa, that's huge. Um, but I began to really listen to him. And every time we saw each other, we'd go to Washington a lot. We, Those of us who were working in the movement came in to Washington several times a year to do policy work. But then we'd get together and have dinner or have meetings and we'd talk over ideas. And I was very eager to talk with him about universal design because it made sense. Let's think about all of our needs, whether we have a disability now or not, because if we live long enough, you will. we will. I had cancer, uh, cancer just a year and a half, well, it's two years ago now. And uh, I thank God I had this house with an elevator and with, uh, I can go to the bedroom on the second floor and go to the bedroom on the third floor. And I have bathrooms there too. I could get in and out if I couldn't do the steps. And for a while, I could not do the steps. I had to come in the back way up the ramp. 
I couldn't walk. So there's a lot of reasons to do universal design, Marsh, and there's information about it all over the internet. It's growing, and thank God it is. Yes, ma'am. I have to hit on this one hot spot, and that's the bathroom. What What are your thoughts? Because <laughs> I know everyone wants to know about that, Colleen. What, what would be your advice trying to fit your or design your bathroom? What are the key points that you would look at? Actually, I have a bathroom upstairs that is, as we renovated it in this house uh, in 1978, we, we started to do gut rehabs on this house. We bought a very old house. And uh, there's a large room that is a bathroom now. It was not a bathroom to begin with. Um, we have a tub in there, an oversized tub. We have a toilet. And we have um, a sink that it only has one sink, but it's a pull under sink. What I would like to do, I'm just saving up my money so I can do it. I want to take the tub out and put in a curbless shower, which means that you just wheel right in. There's no lip, no anything. You put in trench drains, which are underneath the floor. And there's, there's, you see grills on the floor that will collect the water from the shower. You enclose it with glass or a curtain or whatever it is your preference in your budget. Um, but then you put the shower controls within the reach of somebody who's sitting in there. You can also have flip down seats that you can mount on the wall. Um, and you don't have to mount them on the wall right now. You can mount them later when you, when you need to sit in the shower. But everybody can go into a curbless shower somebody who's standing, somebody who's seated. If you have a hose long enough on your handheld shower, you can wash your dog in there, but you need a seven foot hose. Six foot hoses don't usually get down low enough to wash the dog. Want to know how I know? I, I <laughs> But you can buy seven foot hoses in the hardware store and just screw them on yourself. But um, you, when you put in the drywall in your bathroom, because most, ba most bathrooms need a gut rehab, and most bathrooms in American homes are not very big. You could do, in a small bathroom, you could take out the tub, which would give you more floor space. You can make it a curbless shower, and you can tile the floor with these trench drains in there to catch the water, and you can use a curtain. And when you draw the curtain back, you have room to, to transfer onto the toilet. So you can make a little small bathroom bigger by taking out the tub, putting in a shower and dividing it with a curtain. Because if you have a glass door, it takes up space, space when you open the door. But you can have a very long floor length curtain that contains the water. That's one way to do it in a very small bathroom if you just don't have the money or the funds to enlarge part of your house to make it bigger for a bathroom. There are a lot of ways to do this, Marsh. It just takes thinking outside the box and not confining yourself to saying, well, we have this small bathroom and it's so small we can't even put a shower in here. Yeah, you can. Take that tub out and you have some floor space that you can use. And by hanging a curtain and putting in trench drains, um, you can contain the water so it doesn't go all over the floor to your sink and to your toilet. 
and out into your hall. <laughs> oh, there, there are lots of ways to look at it. I, I want to put a curbless shower in my bathroom. Um, I'm trying to decide if I'll keep the wall between the shower and the toilet. Uh, right now I have a little small wall between the tub and the toilet. Um, you can move the toilet. That's not hard to do. It's a plumbing issue. And if you're going to do a gut rehab on a bathroom, make it accessible. That's the time to think about where things get placed. Um, good architects and good builders and, and interior designers, too, are doing are starting to get very interested in this uh, as our occupational therapists in making homes universally designed to better accommodate the needs of whoever's living there. Um, you don't your 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 sink doesn't have to be in a countertop. It doesn't have to be. It can be a pedestal sink. It can be a wall hung sink. Um, there, are, there are lots of ways to get more floor space in the tiny bathrooms that most American homes have. It can become bigger if you take the tub out. And most homes have tubs in them. They have tub showers. So you've got a tub somewhere else for people who want to get in the tub. So it's possible. It's highly possible. Another um, accessibility point is like doorways between rooms. And uh, what would you say, uh, suggest in terms of width off your, your door frames? It depends on how much space you have in the hallway to turn into the bedroom or out into the hallway. One of the things that's become very popular in the design world is barn doors which hang on hardware and they slide back and forth and they slide very easily. I, when I redid my kitchen, I put a barn door across. I have a bathroom off the kitchen and I put a barn door there and you can get hardware that you don't have to be, have to turn. There's long, there's all kinds of hardware you can put on it and it slides very easily opened and closed. That doesn't take up any space, but a couple inches where it sticks out into the room. You can do double doors, uh, French doors instead of one door and have hinges on it that'll allow the door to go completely back against the wall when you have a tight space. 28 inches and 30 inches is too narrow. You've got to get bigger ones. Um, some people use pocket doors. Uh, it depends on whether or not you have the wall space to install a pocket door. They're not all that easy for people who don't have dexterity to open and close, but even that can be managed with a little rope or a pull or something like that. Um, but it, it, there are ways to make existing homes that were designed with 28-inch doors to into the bathroom bigger, but it does depend on coming in and out, whether you have the floor space. You may need a a four foot wide door or a five foot wide door. If you have a little skinny hallway outside the bathroom, the, the, the space required to turn in a wheelchair. And that's the biggest issue is people in wheelchairs. People who walk around, doesn't matter how skinny the door is, but for people in wheelchairs, need the mobility space, the turning space to get into and out of a bathroom and to, to move around inside it, to, to have a turning space inside it. A five foot turning space for somebody in a power chair is small. I recommend six feet if you can do it. 
a six foot turning circle in the bathroom. Colleen, we never have enough time to talk. Oh, call me up. We'll talk again. <laughs> I would love for that. I really would. Guys, thank you for listening along on today's podcast. We sincerely appreciate it if you could rate and review this podcast and share with friends. We are super excited to be going to the Mega Disability Conference in Nashville, Tennessee next week on the 25th and 26th of May. So stay tuned for more details as I'm sure we are going to meet some awesome folks to bring you some more informational content. As always, guys, remember, get to the top of your mountain. This is Marsh Naidu signing off.